No flowers, no chocolates, but all the right words. This is what we talk about when we talk about love on the Vintage Podcast. teased it up slightly at the end of last month's podcast. Will and I could see February approaching and with it the usual onslaught of heart shapes, red roses and sentimental verse. And we felt the urge to resist. Resist. (laughs) Exactly. And so we are going to talk about love, but in our own inimitable way, aren't we, Will? We are. There will be poetry um, and there may not be any flowers, but I have actually brought you some chocolate. I know. Sorry, don't get excited. It's just a bar of dairy milk. But dairy milk is the best. Well, so my wife says, but I don't know if I agree. But anyway, it's here. And if we get peckish... We're not sponsored by dairy oh, milk, no, Other we? chocolate bars are available. Galaxy you say. might go for. Yep. A Yorkie. I note that that bar is not what you'd call family-sized. No. And yet we have so many guests. Our first is Anna Jean Hughes from The Pigeonhole, who has joined us in the studio. Hello, Anna. Hello, hello, hello. Now, briefly... Tell us what the pigeonhole is. Great name. Thanks. The pigeonhole started largely as a response to a gap in the market that I saw uh, for authors to really connect with their readers directly and uh, to have a little bit more of an oomph when it comes to publicity and marketing and give them a really good digital foundation to, to build themselves as a, as living, breathing authors. Um, And so we serialise all of our books direct to an app and a web reader. And the app is very, very integrated. So it comes with a comment functionality and also lots of extra content. So you can listen to things and watch things and read little Q&As and everything else, just basically to keep people reading the books on the app rather than switching over to Candy Crush or whatever (laughs) other gubbins that you might find on your phone because there's a lot of gubbins on your phone. So that's largely... So in other words, I turn on my phone, I'm on the train, and I can not only read a book on my phone, I can also tell you what I think about it. You can definitely tell us. what. I mean, that, that's what as I really go like. along, as yes, I'm reading. Absolutely. This brings in the love, yes, tell us how much you love our books. There you go. It's, um, well, your next plan really is connected more directly with love, isn't it? Yes. Well, we've so one of the things that we've done is to show off the mobile reading platform. We've created a lot of mobile-ready books because although we do take a lot of uh, classics and also books from other publishers and serialise those. What we like to do is to showcase just how good a mobile reading experience can be by making direct-to-mobile books. And one of the things we've started is to do a Letters From series. And they, they started off as Letters From Africa, Letters From Berlin, very much a kind of in-depth, from-the-ground look at a, a city or a country. Um, and we're moving it on slightly with Letters on Love, which uh, submissions open... Uh, Valentine's Day, naturally. Um, why, why not? And it's just a look at all the facets of love. So whether you love a person or an animal or a lasagna or whatever it might be, we want three to 500 words just about that love and it could be directed to that person or to that thing or just around about that thing. And the idea is to create a huge collective of all of these letters and publish them day by day and then have live readings at the South Bank. So we're doing it in conjunction with the South Bank Centre wow. as well. Yeah, it's quite a project. And we've had some very strange submissions in so far, which I won't go into. But um, people Well, have, I mean, people... don't, don't spare Will's blushes, because I think you two met 
over erotica. We, we, I mean, <laughs> we have to be very careful about how we talk about this. But yes, no, we did. We, when the pigeonhole was doing a series of erotica, and that was how I first heard about it from another author. I hasten to add, not not because I was looking, trawling the internet for erotica. But yes, that's how we met. So we, and obviously a mark of both of us that neither of us blushed at all whilst we were no, reading well, some really quite <laughs> full on short stories. It has to be said. There are there were some. I think my favourite line ever, and probably actually in all books, maybe was pull my hair and stuff me with sausages. I can, <laughs> I can take it. I'm a northerner like you. <laughs> there you go. It's still the winner. It's still the winner. It's a wonder that that won't be in a Valentine's card this year <laughs> from Clinton's it. somewhere. What kind of sausages one wonders? Uh, probably nowadays artisan, I would have thought. Have thought. Yeah. If you Organic. really care. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so what sort of things are you looking for with this new project? When you say wide-ranging, do you really, really mean it? It can yes. be anything, however sort of tenuous, as it were, it, in the traditional sense. Absolutely. And um, I think the, the real um, look that we wanted to take was from a gender norm, as a gender normative perspective. So just looking at the various means by which people fall in love these days and how how fluid and sort of pointless this concept of gender is and can be but also just you know fraternal and paternal and uh, all kinds of love self-love might also be involved I have been trying to get a hold of Kanye West but I'm not sure how well that's going to go down but you know Kanye loves Kanye as only Kanye really can loves, so yeah. um, it's it really is just a, a kind of multifaceted opinion on on love via real voices and we're talking to some big writers as well and also artists both multimedia and and visual so that they can be involved and also musicians as well i guess love is one of those things that's been there in in all our sort of reading going way back when hasn't it i mean one remembers those sort of first uh how can i say this descriptions of of physical love that one read as a child perhaps that one wouldn't to have done yes I'm actually thinking about the thorn birds oh, okay. which I shouldn't have been reading <laughs> I think it wasn't that... on my bookshelf at home it so was you found it on your else's. parents bookshelf and was yeah, it one of those things where the pages fell open to a certain yeah, bit yeah I was absolutely horrified but <laughs> what is this <laughs> oh my god people do that yeah well, so how old were you when that happened I suppose I was probably about 10 or 11 that's quite eye-opening, isn't it, at yeah, that age? Yeah, I discovered Philip Roth, mm. and I can't think what the book was that I first read of his, but my dad said, oh, you should read this, and it was the book, I think, that had just been published. It was Deception at the time, and uh, I don't know if you know that book, but it's basically a, a duologue between a man and a woman, but you don't know. It's not marked out in the book who's who, but there's a couple who are having an affair. Um, and it, I was a bit like, I think I was about 17. I was a bit like, whoa, this is quite <laughs> full on. I had not read a book that was that sort of, Long, I don't think at that stage, but obviously after that, I just thought, wow, okay, Actually, that's what adult literature can be. Teenage years, I remember reading John Fowles's *The Magus*, ah. and uh, there is an awful lot of um, carnality. Yes, is that a good way to put it? That's a very good. Uh, a carnality in it, but of course, there's always one detail, and the detail that I remember is in the sea, and I thought, in the sea, <laughs> <laughs> that's really horrid. <laughs> I still kind of think it is horrid. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, salt water, I suppose. And Jean, what about you? <laughs> well, I've did. There are so many. I think my mum thought it would be very funny to give me Lolita when I was twelve. Um, and I do remember thinking, couldn't work out what all the fuss was about. 
But I think that that was because when you're 12, you're just broaching that moment of sexual power when you realise how, how much you've got as a young girl. Um, and I think I felt very coy and, and superior and grown up reading it. Um, but the other one was Story of O, which I read when I was about 15 and I was in the midst of a fight, a battle with my school who were trying very hard to get me to go to games and I was refusing. And there were lots of different processes to try and get me to go to games and eventually one of them was to go and work for a charity, sort of charity social social services type thing and to read to old people in an old people's home. And I took it, I mean, I went there to read to an old lady and um, the woman at the at the place said, just read whatever you're reading. I said, no, I really don't think I can. I really, I don't think I can. I don't think I, and it was Story of O. And so I started reading it to this woman who just, having been in a vaguely catatonic state, started screaming. And it was awful. I oh mean, really awful. And that was that sort of moment when I realised that it wasn't just me who thought it was disgusting. <laughs> Everybody else, this weird book about, um, well, the real vagaries of sex. Yeah, that's one of the few pieces of, I suppose, erotica, he said, doing sort of um, speech marks, that I actually have read. Sort of a conscious effort to read something that is in that genre. Mm. It's sort of, I mean, it's a classic piece of erotica, isn't it? The story of O. Yeah, very... I mean, 60s. But I, I, really, I really enjoyed it for what it had to offer as a kind of... A, Vaguely, vaguely post-prepubescent girl. I thought I find it incredibly exciting. And I remember that that was so what was so brilliant about um, about Fifty Shades. Is I was actually at Random House when we published it, and so many people didn't understand the kind of the huge over over the top um, uh, cry of its joy when it was published. Just think, well, a lot of people haven't read erotica, and they mm. won't have had that feeling of being completely sexually empowered by a book. And I just thought, that's it's wonderful. It's great. Also, reading all the letters from people saying, I've just called my my daughter Anna or my son Christian because I hadn't had sex with my husband for eight years. And, oh, E.L. James, you've, you've <laughs> saved my marriage. And it was just brilliant, this idea <laughs> of all these Christians and Annas running around. <laughs> now, chaps, we have slipped quite quickly into the erotic we side have. of love, See, haven't we? Awesome <laughs> Um, in terms of kind of classic literature, when you think of the real love stories, mm. what springs to mind? Do you know what? The book that I gave to my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, very early on, as a kind of test, you know, like, read this book, this is me. But it's quite a dark book. It's about a couple who come together and sort of spiral out of control and she ends up in a mental hospital and he ends up on death row. But to me, it was there was something sort of bizarrely darkly romantic about it um, and she didn't run for the hills, so... She, we kind of we passed that reading test together. So do you know we, what I mean? We really of, have to get your wife into one of these. Into the podcast, going to go. Saying, What's going on? You, you still went on after. <laughs> the book is Angels by Dennis that? Johnson, and I would recommend it as as a if you like a sort of dark read, but that's something that's filled with amazing poetry. It's a it's a fabulous book. I've just been sent a Dennis Johnson book called Jesus's Son. Son. That's amazing. But someone just but in Amazon in an Amazon package, no 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 nothing just arrived. An early Valentine's maybe. Anna, I it, well, it didn't want this to come up in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I just knew it. <laughs> so much great love in classic literature is sort yeah. of about is about forbidden love. I mean, when you think of something like Madame Bovary, for example, it's yeah. about how writers explore sort of norms of kind of bourgeois society and how it gets broken, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, so it takes something really for an author to to actually paint sort of genuine love doesn't it genuine emotion between people I would as I often do when I want to think of anything good that's happened in literature go back to Middlemarch and, and think about the sort of battles of love and conscience, conscience that take place in that book 
Where is there real love, do you think, in literature? I still I still love Turgenev's first love. I mean, it's one of my all-time favourites. Um, I actually, I gave it to my husband when we first got together, and he was completely blown away by it. And I think it's true that The Forbidden is always seen as more, I guess, more empowering for the, the writer to, to really... Um, explore because it's very much more the the ego, isn't it? Talking about the, the what could be, where actually, actually it's, it takes a great generosity of, of spirit to write about a, a couple, I think, and that's what I find so interesting when it comes to people these days writing about love. But I do, I've always loved Master Margarita as well as a as a love story, and actually the fact that Bulgakov's right, wife finished it after he died, and it really is her pay into their relationship, and actually the ending, I guess, with them flying off into the into the misty time on the backs of flying horses is probably slightly ridiculous. But I can see where she's coming from, and I do and I do always feel, cite that one when I talk about a love story. I think. If you were to give a book this Valentine's Day, I'm very uh, touched to hear that you gave your husband again. Yes, how lovely. Yeah, well, I've actually Kind of better him... than Will, I'm thinking. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Mrs. Will. <laughs> I've given him so many books, and he's going to hate me for saying this, but he's into really high fantasy. Those books that are sort of 800 pages long that build ridiculous, ridiculous worlds, and he'll get lost, and he won't ever show me the... The cover, and he went. Actually, he's just said that's why he loves Kindle so much is that he can read them completely anonymously. So he can say, "No, no, darling, honestly, you know, I'm reading Richard Flanagan," and actually, he's he's just dived into some terrible fantasy. Um, so I've been trying to slowly feed him stuff. I've also given him things like East of Eden, which is another amazing love story because it's that weird moment where the narrator who has fallen in love with a psychopath, but he doesn't know what a psychopath is because it's pre pre the the, the very no knowledge of psychopathy and um, it's quite largely based on his true life as well and I just think how how awful to have fallen in love with someone who's completely incapable of empathy and that's yeah that's another book he's he's reading he's actually got them all on the go I don't know how many of them he's finished <laughs> if, I, if I shout at him he'll pick them up but most of the time I think he's just reading fantasy and nothing wrong with that nothing wrong either. with that at all no I mean, the vintage podcast wants to make clear yes absolutely <laughs> different strokes for different folks <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry. Just... <laughs> and on that note, um, <laughs> happy Valentine's Day, Anna Jean. And uh, we shall move on, I think. I think we should. Huge fun to have Anna Jean Hughes here. And of course, if you'd like to write a love letter, you can email her at anna at thepigeonhole.com. Louis de Bernier is well known, of course, as the author of one of the great romantic novels, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, but he's also a poet, and last month saw the publication of a collection of his love poetry, Of Love and Desire. Written over the course of a lifetime, the poems range from rapture and infatuation all the way to heartache and sorrow, and I'm thrilled that he's joined me in the studio to talk about them today. Hello, Louis. Hello. So this is a lifetime's work, although not your first book of poetry. It's a part of a lifetime's work. Um, there came a point when I realised that I actually had enough poems on this topic to make one volume, and I, I quite like the idea of having a, a volume about one topic. So my last volume was a sort of um, in honour of Konstantin Kavafis, you know, poems written under his influence. Mm. There's plenty more like that in this, actually. Um, but um, I'm probably going to run out of topics after this, and the next collection will have to be general purpose. Well, it's interesting when you, you, you mention there the influence. Um, it seemed to me these poems, you know, a lot of them had kind of a classical feel to them. It felt that you were being inspired by the 
by the classical world. Um, then others seemed quite different. There were humorous poems, there were short and long poems. Just tell me about your sort of interaction with poetry. When you, Have you been an avid reader of it since you were very young? I was very lucky to have an English teacher at my um, second school who would make us learn a poem every week. We had the Dragon Book of Verse, volumes one and two. And the little boys learned from volume one and the bigger boys from volume two. And I can still remember a lot of these poems off by heart. Yes. That, well, um, one was taught, you know, <coughs> at one point to, yes, to by heart, wasn't one? Well, it means that poetry has sort of become embedded in me right from the start. On top of that, my father writes poetry, always has done. He, he's, he's really quite good, actually. 92 now. He says he's got one poem left in him, um, which he wants to give me for my 60th birthday, which was a year ago. Oh, um, <laughs> but uh, any, anyway, so so it was in the family. We all knew that my father wrote poetry. In fact, my mother's nickname for him was Pote. So just tell us about how you write, how you know that an idea, an image, a thought needs to find its expression in poetry rather than in, say, a short story, a piece of prose. Or indeed a song. You know because that's how it comes to you. T- typically with me, I wake up in the morning with something buzzing in my head and I just have to... It gets me very agitated, and I have to write it down as soon as possible. Um, I sometimes get observational poems just from, for example, sitting on a train. Trains are lovely for writing poems on because of the rhythm, which you don't get on these modern things that virgins come up with, and it's really annoying. But um, You get more of a sway, I with think, noisy from trains, those, don't you? Yes, with the, yes, you do. But with noisy trains, you, you get the rhythm there set up for you. You know, it's lovely. An example of a train poem, which isn't in this book, is, is that a few months ago an absolutely beautiful young Latin American girl gave me an absolutely radiant smile on the train for no reason. And I thought, God, it's worth getting to my age just for that. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that that's, that's going to be a poem uh, probably in a, in a future volume. A poem immediately came out. <laughs> yeah, that was... it was just given to me and in my notebook, you know. <laughs> but uh, other poems have come, come overnight and you wake up with them in the morning. Actually, there is a very famous train poem that is sort of to do with love and actually this kind of time of year, isn't it? The Whitson Weddings yeah. by Philip Larkin is, mm, is, a, mm, is about what he, what he sees from the train, isn't That's it? That's right. Um, in terms of kind of contemporary poets, do you read many others? Are you, are you interested in modern poetry? I tend to. I, I'm inclined to read things from all over the world and often, often I, I buy things on spec. You know, I've even come back from Nepal with little volumes of poetry written in English by Nepalese poets, you know. I particularly like Owen Shears, especially his poems that are rooted in the countryside, because um, my, my roots are in the countryside. And there's quite a lot of that in this, this volume too, oh, isn't there? I would there? think so. There must you, be. Yeah, I mean, and poems Tishani about... Tishani Doshi's a good poet. I like Tishani's poetry. There is, there is a, a poem for her in this book. Yes, there I? is, with her permission. And in, t- <laughs> in terms of uh, poetry and, and the visual arts, there are also, and I can't remember the name, you obviously will, a poem that looks like the shape of its subject on the page. What are they called? Oh, well, that, that was something that metaphysical poets were doing in the, um, sixth, in the 17th century. There's there's a lovely one called the altar. It's an altar shaped poem, and in the 1960s there was this fashion for what they called concrete poetry, where the poem was in a shape, and the poetry was always absolute rubbish. <laughs> but if you didn't like really, the poetry, at least you really could look dreadful, at the shape. But really dreadful poetry. But it would but because you know that that was the time when all you had to do was get stoned and write any old crap that came into your mind. But um. <laughs> um I, I took that idea about concrete poetry. So there's a poem about fi- about taking a girl fishing, for example, which is in the shape of a fish. 
And I did it in a normal shape first and then worked out how I could make it fish-shaped. I see. And, and, you... and there's, there's at least one which is woman-shaped. The, the fish poem is also rather... It has a sort of comic feel to it, doesn't it? Because she doesn't really like fishing, even though she's actually rather good at it. No, I think the poem's actually quite beautiful about how, how, how lovely it is to be fishing at that time of night. This is the holy time, it goes. And then that the whole thing is spoiled because not only does she not like fishing, but she's caught the biggest fish. So she's failed on two counts there, hasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> yes. You could call it a concrete poem, if you like. But I, I did make it out of a poem that wasn't concrete. And just tell me about the sort of range of... Uh, we're talking about love today, the range of ki kinds of love that you talk about in, in this book. I mean, there is a sort of yearning love, there's physical love, there's love that's sort of cut off, there's, mm. you know, misunderstandings between people. I've had to miss out all the other kinds of love which are possibly more important, such as the love between friends and the love between siblings, the love between parents and children. Those are things that those kinds of love will have to turn up in the next collection. Well, there you are. You so, say that you're running out of topics, but there's a whole other book. Oh, no, no. I, well, well, yes, you could. I could easily write a whole book of poems about my children, but I'm sure no one would buy it. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so, so, so I've obviously I've, st I've stuck to um, romantic love, really, um, the, you know, from right from when it starts to when it ends in bitter disappointment. <laughs> and talk to me a little bit. You mentioned music a, a little while ago, and, of course, you are a, a very, very keen musician of various kinds of, of mm. instruments that you, you play. What about that sort of overlap between writing and, and music making? If you've got a lot of experience playing and listening to music, it's going to make, your, it's going to make it easier for you to write metrical verse. Um, meter is quite a problem because it, it, isn't, it, it isn't taught anymore in schools about how to do it and why and how it works. And so even quite talented poets are sometimes quite clueless as to how, how to put that pace into the poetry. Brian Johnston in Scotland told me that what he does is he, he reads his poems over and over again, just tinkering with them until they flow properly. And, the, and I thought in the end there must be a less painful way. And so I started learning about metrics, you know, the old-fashioned way. Mm. And if you understand metrics, you can spot instantly why any given line is lumpy. But, but also, I use, I, obviously I use the normal poetic tricks, alliteration up to a point, but I use an awful lot of assonance where you get vowel sounds that chime. And I also I like to put my rhymes on the insides of lines rather than on the end, because so it's although the rhymes are still there, but it's less like being bashed on the head with a rubber mallet. There is a sort of overlap with with lyric writing. Um, you know, lyric writing and poetry aren't aren't identical um, things because with a lyric you can stretch a syllable as long as you like, can't you? When you're doing a sustained note or whatever, or a long warble. But there, there is a sort of overlap there. And in my in my twenties, I, I I struggled quite a lot to write songs because back then I thought I was going to be Bob Dylan. Well, many would argue that Bob Dylan is a, is a kind of you know his lyrics do stand up as poetry. Don't, I don't think don't many they? of them do. You don't think so? I th I think he's a, he's 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 a marvelous lyricist, and but even then he he often writes really bad lines like you ought to be made to be wearing a telephone just because he was looking for a rhyme. If you're desperately looking for a rhyme, that really is pretty sad. <laughs> <laughs> and I've noticed when he ever performs that song live, he's changed that line to something else because he himself knows it was rubbish. <laughs> who is your favourite lyricist? Do you have a, a one who you think has really mastered oh, the there's form? there's so many of them. I mean, like, 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 like a lot of people, I really love Lenny Cohen, not least because of the humour. 
but also because of his mythological and religious references. His, his lyrics have a sort of a greater depth than the average lyric. Um, and I don't find them depressing. I think they're sometimes outrageously funny. Um, Louis, um, are you, are you, what are you working on at the moment? Is it mainly volume two interspersed with poetry? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to grips with volume two, but life is conspiring against me. Like having to come down to London and do podcasts. <laughs> We're very glad you did. <laughs> um, I think yes, we better I, give you some of our special podcast I spend chocolates. spend most of my time on the road taking my daughter to gym classes. <laughs> well, I think uh, there is no love greater than the parent who is endlessly ferrying children around to appointments, is there? No, no that's true. <laughs> many thanks for joining us today. Pleasure, thank you. We've spoken about some of the many different forms of love in this podcast and we know that a love for books is one thing that you probably share with us here. Occasionally a book will arrive at Vintage that captures everyone's attention and it's passed quickly from hand to hand. Stoner and H's for Hawk were both recent examples but in the last few months everyone has been talking about a memoir called When Breath Becomes Air. It was written by American neurosurgeon Paul Kalanithi after he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer at the age of 36. He died last year, and so as you would expect, it's an extremely emotionally wrenching read. But it's also one of the most uplifting memoirs I've ever read. Paul examines what it means to be human in the face of death and what makes a good life and indeed a good death. His widow, Lucy, has written a beautiful afterword in the book, and it's a great privilege to be able to speak to her today about Paul, their life and their love. Thank you so much for joining us, Lucy. Thanks for having me, Alex. Now, this idea of the the good death Mm. is one that I think goes throughout the book and I kept coming back to it. And it's something that actually even just recently really um, became something that we were talking about when David Bowie died, for example. This idea that someone who had really managed their death in a sense Mm -hmm. how much do you think that was a part of what Paul wanted to write about um yeah it's um I'm just sort of thinking for him he he had thought so much about what makes a meaningful life that for him in a way um sort of the death is the ending to a meaningful life um and it's sort of an impetus to live a meaningful life and so for him um I, I almost think of the concept of a good death. It feels to me as if it's um, sort of part and parcel of, of a good life and really the focus of you know his memoir, even though he's dying and he's writing about dying, he's really writing about living, and I think that's something you alluded to. Um, I think the other place that um, I'm sort of seeing this book, um, When Breath Becomes Air, fit um, in sort of um, current writing about living and dying is... Um, you know, along with being mortal by Atul Gawande, it's getting at the idea that dying is not actually a, a medical process, really. It's kind of a process of being human and a process of what our bodies do. Um, and, and it's sort of a universal experience. So um, sort of thinking about um, a meaningful life and then a death being the end of it for all of us um, is kind of what Paul's addressing. And, and it's a kind of stark and shocking thing, but it's um, it's also something that we all need to make sense of, and um, that's sort of that's sort of how he ties up sort of life and death together. Well, what's really amazing is how that's kind of written into the structure of the book, because the book mm-hmm. starts with him saying, you know, here I was a doctor, I was looking at my own scans, I was realising that I was very ill, yeah. and then we realise, of course, that he faces a very, very grave diagnosis. 
And then the book changes completely. Right. He starts talking about his childhood, the point at which he realises he wants to be uh, a doctor and then you know, slowly specialises and becomes a neurosurgeon. But throughout that, actually, there's there's his battle with, with how to weave art into that and mystery, isn't there? He, he's desperately interested in literature and at one point wants to study literature. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly right. Um, that's exactly right. He surprised himself by um, becoming a doctor initially. He had always, as a young child, um, been a voracious reader and then had dreamed of being a writer. And he initially started studying English literature um, and was uh, sort of he studied English literature and um, history and philosophy of science and medicine. So it sounds, um, you know, obviously really sort of erudite and academic, but really what he was doing was searching for, um, you know, answers to these big questions of what is it to be human. And so just as he'd been interested in literature and what that, what literature helps us understand about the, the mind um, and, and consciousness, he found this a similar thing in neuroscience. So he was a reader and a neuroscientist. And then ultimately, as a neurosurgeon, that's the place where um, you are you are meeting patients and families in like the deep stories of their own lives, you know. And and it's also a place where every operation you do on someone's brain, um, you're interacting with like the literal stuff of that person's identity. Um, so all of these ideas of, you know, literature, stories, human experience, medicine, mortality, identity, meaning. I mean, it, it, he was sort of swirling around in all of that. Um, and it's a bit unusual for someone, I think, to, um, to be an English literature major and then enter into medicine. But um, for him, it made complete sense the way that story went. You just come into contact with this mind trying to think through all these these huge questions. And of course, you know, maybe it's easy to say this after the fact, but it seems very obvious that he was never going to be, I don't know, a stomach doctor or a, mm. you know, or, or a bone setter or something like that. It, you know, the fact that he uh, was interested in the brain and the mind seems absolutely key. Um, and one of the things that I found so extraordinary about the book was when he talked about his changing relationship with patients as he became more experienced and the way that he said you had to really know them. Mm. You know, you were operating on their brain, mm -hmm. but you had to know them to know what kind of life you could make for them with the illness that they had. That's right. And to help guide them. He says in the book, he describes a number of different cases um, of patient cases. And he says things like, you know, when you're having neurosurgery, it's not a theoretical question. Uh, would you trade your ability to speak for a few more months of life? Would you change? Um, would you give up the function of one of your arms in order to stop seizures? And it's there are these intense trade-offs wherein oftentimes people only have bad choices and um, or difficult choices and they need to really understand what's important to them and their doctor really needs to understand um, and, and be able to guide them and it's it's very very intense um, and meaningful for um, to be able to do that and then he suddenly finds himself on the flip side. Did he feel that that was something that was missing in medicine? You know, that, that business of actually getting to grips with someone's identity and being able to really to empathize with them. You know, I think we all sort of understand that at places it's missing and in other places it's not. It's something we all really hope for in our own care. Um, 
Uh, and Paul himself talks about how when he's training as a neurosurgeon, he ends up um, at one point so crushed by the um, arduousness of the work and the hours on his feet and the lack of sleep that he starts feeling detached um, from his patients and um, less engaged. And then he realizes, you know, what is it that I'm actually doing? I, I'm really trying to, you know, meet people where they are and help people in a real way. And the way to do that is to make those connections. But it's a real struggle. And I think um, it's a struggle for patients to make sense of it and um, desperately need that from their doctors. And it's a struggle on the other side to remain, um, you know, um, engaged and compassionate. And I think that's what everybody's working toward. And um, how do we create, you know, spaces to be able to do that well? Of course, as you said, he then crossed what seems yeah. like a sort of huge divide between the well and the ill, between doctor and patient. How does a doctor, and you're a doctor mm -hmm. too, how does a doctor go about allowing themselves, in a sense, to become a patient? Yeah. Um, you know, he writes about this in the book where he says something, he uses this metaphor where he says, you know, I, I became terminally ill and I... I initially thought I'd be able to kind of follow in the footsteps of the patients and families that I had guided and, and accompanied. And then he's like, but when it happened to me, it was like this barren wasteland. It was like a gleaming desert. I was, he was so disoriented um, and so just spun around um, by receiving this diagnosis that in a way he was um, building it from scratch, just like anybody. Um, and that was actually a point at which he instead of turning only to his medical knowledge, turned again to reading. Um, and I remember um, the day that we got the terrible news that he had this chest x-ray that showed multiple tumors and we were going to get a CAT scan and both of us um, were quite certain that day um, that he had metastatic cancer. Um, I was packing for the hospital and I packed, you know, phone chargers of comfy pillow, socks, things that you would need to be a bit more comfortable in your hospital room. And he packed only three books. Um, he packed uh, Heidegger's Being and Time, um, C.S. Lewis's um, Mere Christianity, and Solzhenitsyn's Cancer Ward. And he he knew, you know, this is the worst moment of my life and I, I am instinctively reaching for books. Um, so that was sort of an amazing moment for me to see him um, fall back on sort of his first love and um, in a very visceral way. And then, of course, he turned not just reader, but writer. Mm -hmm. um, that sort of ambition, you know, that in a sense he'd taken a different path, he'd gone into medicine. Right. Um, but at this point, he thought, no, I can write. That's right. How did that come about? Um, yeah, so there was sort of the logistical piece of it, which was... Um, uh, the way it came to be um, sort of chronologically is that initially, despite being terminally ill, he returned to work as a surgeon. Um, I mean, he had he had work accommodation and he made sure that it was safe, but he wanted to go back to, um, to operating. And then he became too debilitated to do so. And in that period of time had written an essay um, that was published in the New York Times uh, called How Long Have I Got Left? And it was about the uncertainty of um, medical prognosis and uh, how that feels. Um, and because of that, he came into contact with a literary agent and um, uh, the happy prospect of being able to write a book. And so as he became so debilitated, he couldn't work as a doctor. He had begun sort of furiously writing. Um, and ultimately, for the last year of his life, um, he was working on this memoir um, 
you know, and he's writing the book as a journal of his experience, but he's he's he was very aware that he was writing it to be read, um, you know, to bring a reader into the experience of facing your mortality very directly and understanding what it is that, um, at least for him, helped him understand what made life meaningful for him um, and what brought him, you know, a, a good life and a good death. Um, and it's interesting because I see people responding to the book for exactly the reasons that Paul wrote it. It's really amazing to see, and um, he would have just loved to see that. One of the things that, if I had to sort of take away one thing from it, if I thought there was one thing that really has really stuck with me it's that idea that from that moment he was reimagining his future and he he actually he had to continue to do that because you know a prognosis is never actually Mm. necessarily hugely accurate you know that could change um but nonetheless you have to in a sense relinquish the future that you thought you were going to have but find a new one i mean that was really part of what he wanted to write about, I think. Is that right? That's exactly right. Um, You know, even getting the news that he had metastatic cancer, which at this point is incurable, um, it can't be cured, um, he he did need to make sense of, no matter how much time I have left, who am I now and what's important to me? And so he he needed to clarify um, exactly what's the path forward, what's my future now. So as he was writing, and obviously you were caring Mm -hmm. for him, he's was very close to his family they were all round about too but you were aware of this text growing you didn't Mm. I'm sure know exactly the form that it would take but how did you feel about it what did you feel about the book as it was coming into being yeah um that's right so um the book his writing the book really was um a a major part of the last year of his life and so he took his computer his laptop computer with him to the chemo suite um, for chemotherapy and uh, my uh, our daughter and I were you know lying next to him often when he was writing and um, so it was a big piece of our activities and we structured his medications around writing time so that he would be able to focus and not be too sleepy on pain medications let's say so we did a lot of thinking about how to make it possible for him to write Um, and then interestingly the fact of his writing and my reading it in real time Um, it was actually a really useful communication tool for us because the book is quite intimate about the way he's feeling and thinking about his illness. Uh, I think he was able to um, express it on the page in a way that maybe he wouldn't even have verbally. So it was interestingly kind of intimate um, in the time that he was writing it um, for us in our marriage. You You mean in the sense that you would read it and think, okay, I I now have another sort of way of knowing how he's feeling. That's right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. And what extent um, were you and he conscious of this idea that he was also writing for your daughter, mm. who, as you said, you know, was born uh, when Paul was already very ill, um, and he knew that the likelihood was he wouldn't see her grow up. Um, how how much was that a part of his project? Um, that was. I think that had significant meaning to him. He knew that. Um, that this was in a way um, a, a way of communicating with our daughter Katie because um, as you say uh, it was very very unlikely that um, he would live long enough for her to have a memory of him um, and he's 
Um, at one point, he said, you know, one of his fears was not living long enough to finish the book um, because of that fact, because he really did want to be writing it in part to her. Um, and the last paragraph of the book is sort of a love letter to her, where he describes the impact that she had on him um, as an infant. Um, and then there are some big themes about what he comes to um, feel are the some of the great um, lessons that he's learned and sort of put really simply there are some of the things you might teach your child you know it's in um about the ideas of sort of love and striving um and the striving pieces you know um you know it's important to try hard it's important to be a good person it's important to try to do the right thing um and so the book is sort of a philosophical treatise um and a reflection but it's also a um it is a message to her can i ask you now a little bit about you and how you feel sure. about it. Sure. And you have written this this final chapter, which is not by any means just a sort, you know, a short sort of summing up. I mean, it's it's an a, a complicated and emotionally rich essay in its own right. And you also say that the book is not exactly finished because there sort of was no finishing it. He was writing it until the mm-hmm. end of his his life. Mm-hmm. What did it mean for you to sort of be part of it? And, and what about now the book's been published mm. and has another life, as it were? Right, right. Um, so when he died, my first, um, when Paul died, my my real impetus um, and um, drive was to ensure that the book somehow still be published. It wasn't even clear, actually, when he died. Can it still happen? Um, was there enough Who of will it? promote what it? Is there thing? enough? Uh-huh. Will people want to read a book by someone who's just died? Um, and so the initial push was working with um, the publisher to, to um, you know, edit it and build it into a book and choose a cover and um, make it happen. And then they asked, would you be willing to write an epilogue? And my first reaction was sort of shock. I'd never, you know, Part of the reason I'm a doctor is that I absolutely don't think of myself as a writer. You know, I'd never enjoyed writing at all. So, um, but this, I've, I, I actually think if Paul could have written about his own death, he would have. It's part of the story, and mm-hmm. I. So I did feel sort of a real. Um, it was compelling to me to record it, um, and then to reflect on his death and his life as a way to sort of flesh out and close the story. Um, and I, I really did it. I sort of thought, you know, this is why writers write. Um, you know, they have something to say. Um, and then since the publication of the book, it's exceeded our wildest expectations, this um, enormous reception and a conversation that it's become part of. Um, For me, it's really helpful because, you know, Paul died 11 months ago, and um, I still get to talk about him all the time. I mean, I'm sitting here with you today talking about Paul, and it's very, it's part of my own grief and healing um, to be able to share and reflect on him, and it teaches me something about how to help or what to offer someone who's in bereavement, you know, it's it's actually been very helpful for me, and I, I still love Paul, and I still feel very proud of Paul. Inevitably, with a book of this kind, readers will feel extremely personally touched by it. Um, you know, they may relate their own experiences to it, they may relate them to you, mm-hmm. and I wondered how you felt about that, how you felt about being, in a sense, open to those other experiences. Yeah, um... Insofar as I've been able to connect with people and share those experiences um, two ways, I've really enjoyed it so far. I think, um, you know, one of the things that books 
um, and writing can do is sort of bring the hidden um, into into view. And so um, it's a way to talk about um, death and grief um, in a way that people often don't connect and feel isolated. So um, I've loved that, actually. And then there's another piece of it, which is, you know, I'm realizing once you write something, there's there's the book Paul wrote, and then there's the book that people read. Um, and those are actually two different things. You know, the reader has his or her own lens, like you say. Um, so some of that is a letting go or a, like um, permission um, or acceptance of, you know, now now the book has its own life. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about it. It was just an extraordinary book to read. I, I said a bit earlier the thing that really struck me about it, this idea of kind of relinquishing the future or the idea that you can mm-hmm. control it. I wonder if there's sort of one thing, aspect of it that you could pick out what it what it would be that you wanted people to, to respond to. Of the book itself? Mm. There's, a, there's a little portion of the book that I really love where Paul's talking about our deciding to have a child despite the fact that he... Uh, had terminal cancer. And, and he's describing where I said to him, you know, if we decide to have a child, don't you think that needing to say goodbye um, to that child would make your death more painful? And Paul says, wouldn't it be great if it did? Um, and that's a portion of the book I really love where he, he's getting at this idea that life is not about avoiding suffering. It's about creating meaning. Um, and I think we all do understand that in our own um, striving to um you know, work hard or travel or um, have children or whatever it might be. We're not always choosing the easiest paths. We're choosing meaningful paths and building our lives. And I think that's a that's one of the ideas that Paul's getting at um, in this book. And I, I am that's one of the ones I love. Thank you. I mean, the book overflows with meaning, and it's just a wonderful book to read. Thank you so much for talking to us about it today. Thank you, Alex. Well, it was wonderful to have Lucy here in the studio, wasn't it, Will? She is uh, an amazingly eloquent and controlled and, I don't know, just an amazing, awesome person. I really can't recommend that book highly enough. I'll say one thing about it. When I started it, it was not the book I thought it was going to be. It it ranged so widely. You think you're going to read an account of somebody's illness, which would be as it were, sort of interesting enough, and mm. then it turned out to be about so much else. I just thought it was wonderful. I think his his love of literature comes across so clearly in the book, and there are so many times where, in order to explain a feeling or an emotion, he is reaching for a, a quotation from another book. And so, the, you know, the bibliophile in me was just, just loving all of that. And he, of course, is such an amazing communicator and writer himself. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a joy from first to last page. Well, it's been a wonderful podcast. I think next month we think we might get out and about as spring begins to spring. Is yes, that right? I think, you know, the weather hopefully will improve. Uh, and if it doesn't, you'll have a very windy podcast to listen to. But, yeah, we're going to go out, out of the studio. We're going to be finding some very specific places and talking about some very specific periods of time. And yes. Uh, Listeners, as I understand it, I've seen the rough plans. I've got to go for a long walk and you're going for a drink in a bar. Well. You know, this is what happens if I get to make the plans. (laughs) And we haven't even opened the chocolate yet. Please join us next month on the Vintage Podcast. And if you'd like to listen to any of our previous episodes, you can find us on SoundCloud, at iTunes and on www.penguin.co.uk forward slash vintage. 